0: Welcome to the SwampFlex podcast. My name is Brandon Leday.
1: I am Allie.
0: And I am Boomer. And we are recording at the bottom of a lake and the bed of a river and the bottom of a pool of sweat, <laughs> respectively. I going
1: to say, and the, the surface of the sun, yeah.
0: <laughs> Getting great internet reception underwater this week, which is great. Uh, we got to look out for ghosts and vampires down there, but more of that in a minute. I'm looking forward to talking about spooky movies again. I feel like the summer, if it's not over, we're at least wanting for it to be over because it's so fucking hot outside. So I'm ready to talk about spooky movies and cooling off until November. I'm not sure.
1: Manifesting.
2: I, I, I like the idea of manifesting. But also, I saw a Party City commercial the other day for Halloween stuff. And I said, I know Party City is not advertising Halloween decor to me when it's the 40th straight day of 104 degree highs i'm not i know they're not trying to sell me on halloween right now what's your like starting point when you want to start seeing halloween stuff is it like after labor day like what's the like kickoff for you um maybe not after labor day but after the equinox that's probably the most accurate reverent way to like same hang your way yeah through through salad yeah And as soon as Halloween is over, it's fine for, you know, scarecrows and cornucopias or whatever, even though Thanksgiving is a bunk-ass holiday. I don't want to see anything Christmas before December 3rd either, but I don't have much of a choice in that because, unfortunately, that's our most capitalistic holiday, and therefore it's the one that gets shoved down our throats the most.
1: The Christmas industrial complex.
2: I love Christmas, but I hate Christmas music. I like decorations and giving i love it when you know rich old men um get the living daylight scared out of them oh, and they yeah. decide to become more generous uh all of that is fine but i don't i don't ever want to hear
1: Grandma got run over fire reindeer
2: yeah yeah i'll tolerate amy grant and feliz navidad and that's about it oh and uh hard candy christmas not to spoil what i'm going to talk about in a minute
0: Oh my God. Did you watch best little whorehouse in Texas?
2: I sure did for the first time. Yes. (laughs) And I loved it. So add that one on. I I guess we're kind of jumping in here. Um, (laughs) But uh, add that onto the list of musicals that I did actually enjoy. Now I put this in my movie watch list and I gave it a five star personal rating, even though I know it is not a five star movie. I recognize objectively it's kind of bad. But I really, really loved it. Especially like, you know, I've been going through, we were talking about this off mic earlier. I've been pretty blue lately. And a friend of mine invited me over for Borscht. And then we watched Best Little, Little Whorehouse in Texas. And, some, <laughs> and I don't even like beats either. And I loved the Borscht. And I loved Best Little Whorehouse. I had so much fun with it. It really boosted my serotonin for like a whole day. Like the next day was the first day I woke up in days without being like, I need to cry
0: before I can get out of bed. And I owe it all to Dolly. Are you aware that I also watched this movie for the first time this year? Wow. I loved it so much that I manufactured an entire podcast episode about Dolly Parton where we watched nothing but Dolly movies, and that was the centerpiece. I loved it. It was so fun. I think it's the best vehicle for her talents. Like, she is adorable in it, she's both kind of corny and chaste, but also extremely sexual. And she sings a ton of songs, which, I mean, if you're going to have Dolly Parton in your movie, you you want her singing as much as possible. Okay, so I have a mild disagreement, which is that I don't think she sings enough
2: in this. She doesn't really, she only has like four songs, though.
1: (gasps) That's a musical where you think there's not enough singing?
2: (laughs) It's true. Although, I will say my actual favorite musical number, like within the movie, that's not a song I already knew and or loved is the governor's song about, you know, screwing around, or not screwing around, but uh sidestepping any kind of important questions that the journalists might have for him. It reminds me a lot of what it's like living in Texas now, <laughs> um, where we have a governor who sidesteps as well, which is very impressive considering, you know, his physical condition. But he's never answered uh a question to my satisfaction either so i really enjoyed that and that that part was very magnetic i really enjoyed that song this sort of like scooby-doo running around in the state capitol was a lot of fun to me Tom am is hilarious in that movie yes and one thing i will say is it's a very traditional musical it's like you can tell that it was a stage musical that was brought to the screen because there's an awful lot of like it's not that the dance sequences aren't frenetic and engaging, but while I was watching them, I was like, "Oof, this is a very traditional like format for a musical, where there is for long periods of time just a lot of like fun dancing around. There's hoedowns and you know stuff like that." So it felt a little bit long in parts, simply because of that. But I still really enjoyed it. Um, I love "Hard Candy Christmas." I've always loved that song. I had no idea that it was related to this movie at all. Dom DeLuise is a, is perfect. Um, it's kind of a wonderful movie for this moment, too. Because it's like, you know, this Texas town where uh, there is a whorehouse, but there's uh, nothing dirty going on, as they say. And, you know, Dolly has her rules for what the girls have to do to stay employed at the chicken ranch and stay decent and all of that. And this sort of outside media influencer shows up to stir up trouble is a complete and utter hypocrite in the sense that he's always like i'm gonna show the world the truth even and he's like giving this speech while uh, adorning himself with corsets and wigs and various other things that are like you know uh the emperor wears no clothes like he is the problem And so we often see that now with external influences coming to places where something might be out of the norm, but is not harmful in any way and is accepted by the community and stirring shit up by drawing attention to it in a bad faith manner. So I also really enjoyed that element of it. It was very, I would say, ahead of its time, but it's still like post Reagan. So we're all living in that. So
0: Mm -hmm. Well, it's also like the end of that sort of x-rated period in major studio filmmaking too where like sex was fun and free it was kind of like the free love movement died somewhere in the 70s and this movie's kind of like you know party's over wrap it up shut shut it down close the shutters the moralists have come and shut down this part of hollywood so it's like one last like final hurrah for the sort of like sexual liberation of the era at the same time yeah i was very i wasn't ex- it hurt
2: my heart to learn what a miserable time she had making this movie and that she and burt reynolds didn't get along but you wouldn't know it from watching it their their chemistry is amazing they're so magnetic
0: and he wears those little black lace panties for her that's very cute
2: yeah and i i really enjoyed um gomer Pyle or whatever the actor's <laughs> name is uh, jim neighbors as his deputy who's giving like this, you know, a uh, voiceover. I loved every one of the girls at the Chicken Ranch. I really enjoyed the the big event following the Texas A&M Aggies game where, you know, they they start out with this like kind of ballroom sort of dance and then eventually it gets a little hinkier and then, you know, they all go off to their rooms and, you know, I, it was so fun. I really enjoyed it. I um, I was surprised how much I enjoyed it. And even though the trappings of the traditional stage slash theater musical that are the things that I don't like about musicals were present here, how can you not love it? What's not to love? You know? I also rated it five stars. I put it in my my document as five stars. So we are in agreement. The Best (laughs) Little Whorehouse in Texas is, in fact, the Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Um, five stars on this side of the Texas, Louisiana line and five stars over there too. <laughs> so one of the other things that I watched, uh, that was a first time watch for me. And this may come as a surprise is for the first time. I have now seen another movie that was ahead of its time. Dr. Strange love or how I learned oh, to stop wow. worrying and love the bomb, which was something that I somehow never managed to see before this point. And, uh, no surprise there. That one also got a five star rating from me. It's very funny. It yeah, very it funny. was so funny. Again, that also lifted my spirits. Like I watched that uh even though it's bleak, obviously.
1: Yeah, it's one of those it's one of those where you're like, "Ugh, I hate that I'm laughing so hard at something this horrible <laughs> and bleak."
0: But what else can you do? Yeah, right? I was
1: going to say that's what I feel like all well... the time.
0: What else you can do is um, write a three-hour biopic about the men who very yeah. seriously created the bomb and felt bad I mean, about it.:
1: Come on. <laughs> Go the Nolan route.
0: Yeah. I'm going to say
2: no, thank you. I will avoid the Nolan route personally. but you <laughs> as know.
1: most people, including Nolan probably should. Yeah.
2: Still no interest in Oppenheimer from me. I love being so far from the discourse. It fills me with love and joy and a thrill. Weirdly, I don't think there is much discourse. I think most of the no, discourse belongs to Barbie. Yeah. Well, that just shows you how far I am from it. Yeah, there you go.
1: <laughs> Congratulations.
2: Thanks. Everything about Dr. Strangelove is great. I loved it. It was hilarious. It was very bleak. You know, it's one of those movies where so much of it has filtered into pop culture just through osmosis because of what a big movie it was. Uh, my friend who showed it to me she said that it's her favorite of Kubrick's that she thinks it's his best and Mm. although I'm not sure that I would fully agree um I I definitely think that she has a good point I think that it's arguable that it might be
1: okay so am I the only one here among this group that's like Barry Lyndon's actually really good see here's the thing
2: actually that that is I've often cited that one as my favorite and I'm not sure if it's true or if i was just a teenage contrarian and got stuck
0: i don't know i saw barry lyndon for the first time in my 30s at the britannia and i absolutely loved it
1: yeah uh, okay, i think it's a toss-up
0: between that one and the shining for a personal favorite
1: yeah same, those feel actually. very
0: full and like rich and like yes. have all these layers you can dig through where like dr strangelove is like basically this farce about the bleakest subject you can imagine and i agree Um, And in fact,
2: The Shining would probably be my primary um, contender for an alternate number one, even though A Clockwork Orange is, you know, great. There is something about this one that makes it more accessible, I think, because it is a comedy and a farce. And even though it's a farce that's like, you know, beloved by academics, it's also one that is not it doesn't have a very high barrier for entry as far as like what you're going to enjoy within it it's very straightforward in its farcical nature in a way where uh like you were saying like the shining you know the fact that that movie is dense enough that it's got like weird crazy conspiracy theories about it that uh, you know has spawned who got god knows what um out there on the internet and like you know barry linden is also like a very dense movie it has a it's not it's not for the faint of heart I think that Dr. Strangelove is really approachable. And I think that that might be part of the appeal of it. Uh, So I do get a channel that occasionally or or frequently has in syndication, Murphy Brown. And it was a show that I really wanted to get into because I remember what like a big deal it was when I was young. And I remember it being, you know, such a like a big show that everyone was always talking about back in the 90s. And I could not get into it. And part of it is that the movie, uh, the film, the show really is of its time. It's very of the 90s. But then I did catch an episode from 89 where uh, there's a general character who is going on to the show within the show that Murphy Brown is a host of and is going on and on and on about the importance of the military budget and the necessity of maintaining a high military budget to keep out the Russians and the communists. And it was a very bleak moment for me. Because, you know, conceptually, you understand that most things have never gotten better over the course of your lifetime. But then you watch something that came out when you were two years old that is so trapped within the same paradigm that we're in now, where it's like, God, can't we get past it? Can't we move forward at all? And Dr. Strangelove in some ways makes that worse because this movie is from 1964 and it is also about, you know, not just military overspending and not just military overreach and not just like the power of the military, but specifically about how world war three comes as the result of like one man's conspiracy theory. It's like one man's impotence leads him down this like train of troll logic that ends with the Russians are putting fluoride into the water to make us impotent and replace our precious bodily fluids. And that's so similar to the rhetoric of what we're dealing with now, sixty years later, where it's like it's it's so bleak that you can have something that's so obviously intended to satirize people's absurd conspiracy theories and then 60 years later those same conspiracy theories still being part of the discourse it's like we cannot move forward at all it's 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 depressing and it would be much harder to swallow if it wasn't wrapped up in such a wonderful peter sellers like cellophane
0: i kind of miss the days when i could listen to like coast to coast am and be delighted by the weird conspiracy theories on there you Know as a teenage insomniac, but now it's like such a mainstream way of thinking, and like there's so many people with like congressional power that think that way, and it's like really hard to find any entertainment or delight in that whatsoever. Um, so I don't even know if you could make a satire about this that's like at all entertaining anymore, or yeah. that people
1: would actually see as a satire is the sad right. part, yeah, like that's reality like is over like the 50. top enough. Yeah, is that you can't tell if something's a satire anymore just because it's, like, it's too far gone.
2: Yeah, if you exposed, like, a QAnon theorist to this movie, they would be like, I don't understand what the big deal is. You know, and that's depressing. Uh, And then finally, I did watch a new film. It's currently on Hoopla, so if you've got your library card, you can watch this at any time, and I recommend that you do. Uh, It is called The Cow Who Sang a Song Into the Future or la vaca que canto, una hacia el futuro, um which I probably just butchered. It's yeah, from it's Chile. Okay.
1: I won't correct you.
2: you <laughs> know it's it's terrible. like i I can read it very well, yeah, but yeah. pronounce my pronunciation's terrible. You, you You kind of have to if you live in Texas. You have to be able to be at least partially bilingual to, like read. But yes. my pronunciation, I assume it's terrible. and i I would never embarrass myself um in front of anyone. Uh, it's from Chile. It's by a filmmaker named Francesca Allegria, who has done some shorts before, written and directed. It's about a woman who returns home to her family dairy farm, and she, you know, lives as a well-off doctor in like an, you know, a cold urban home. Uh, and her father has had a stress-induced heart attack uh, because he saw what we saw which is uh magdalena is the main character's name her mother was cecilia who killed herself when magdalena was seven years old and now she has returned and it is sort of all about uh, a lot of the discourse about it or at least the writing about it and the 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 critique and the you know cultural discussion has mostly been about how the film is like an environmentalist film which is part of it, and it is relevant, although, to me, that's not the thing that's most interesting about it. Like, when I see the trailer, it's like, oh, it, you know, has a, a hopeful hymn in, in this, like, time of climate upheaval. Um, whereas I think that that mostly serves, you know, that's not what is what at the forefront for me. This is, to me, is a movie about um, a different kind of pollution. It's about the toxicity of a parent and how that can pollute your life forever. And of course, the river is a metaphor for that. But we learn more as the film goes on about Magdalena's mother, about her father. And we see the way that her expressions of coldness and harshness and cruelty and sort of like uh, separation from nature are born out of her father's Bigotries, hatreds, and other like problematic elements. So, for instance, Magdalena has a trans daughter named Tomas. We don't, we don't, we never get a, a different name for her. That is her birth name, but like we're never given another name for her either. Um, but she has this daughter who she refuses to acknowledge uh, the gender identity of, and she says, "You know, as long as you're in my house, you'll be my son," etc. And then later in the film whenever there is a tragic event that happens at the farm and magdalena's brother is like crying in frustration and grief you know his father calls him a homophobic slur and so it's like a really like clear textual example of the way that magdalena's father has poisoned her and her river of her life and how this reemergence of her mother which it's magical realism. You don't really know exactly why she's back or what she's back for. It just happens to happen at the same time that this river that she drowned in, that she threw herself into has become poisoned. So she emerges as the film opens from this water to this sort of like Elegiac chorus of, you know, what we're doing to the earth, everything like that, you know, with this toxic waste going into this river. And it's not immediately clear, but later on, based on other things that happen, I believe that that like, song is actually something that Cecilia is hearing, and it's being sung to her by the fish. Because we later have a scene where Magdalena actually uh, hears or uh, seems to hear a hymn or an elegy that is being sung by the cows that are you know used for milking on this dairy farm. So it's really interesting, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of ways to go about, like dissecting this onion and peeling back its layers. And it's, you know, themes about environmentalism and hope and everything like that. They're very present. And I'm like, I, I love that that's what people are talking about, like the magical realism of it, the environmental activism, like there's a huge subplot where these like environmental activists are like, um, you know, staging sit ins and holding protests. But for me, and and when I put my copy out, which will come out soon, I'm sure I'm going to finish that up tonight and get it over to Brandon for publication. Uh, I don't and that's why I don't want to go too much further into this. But for me, it's about and maybe this is because of my personal life. It's about the toxicity of a father and how Magdalena has been poisoned for so long by her father and his, you know, various negative qualities. And how she moves from living her life through the worst aspects of her father and into living her life through the best aspects of her mother, who she finally gets to like meet as an adult and know differently. Although uh, her mother is mute throughout the entire film. And the magical realism elements of it are really cool. Of course, lots of stuff goes unexplained or not made explicit, which, you know, sometimes there was a time in my life where I would not have enjoyed that. I enjoyed it here. You know, there's a really great moment where uh, Cecilia goes into a place, like a like an apartment, and the electronics around her kind of go haywire. The microwave goes on and off, but the TV comes on and it's a news story about this Cruces River being poisoned and she coughs and so does the anchor man. And that's present throughout the film where like her presence causes people to have sympathetic reactions. Uh, And it reminded me a lot of the parable of the sower, uh, by Ursula K. Le Guin, but also just like, it's a really cool element that's in this and it doesn't have to be explained. It's fun anyway. And this was beautiful. Um, I will say, you know, it's not for the faint of heart. If you're a person, uh, we were talking earlier, it's it's a, put your phone in the other room kind of movie. And if you can't do that, I'm I feel bad for you, son, but I (laughs) would give this one a big recommendation especially because if you've got your library card and if you've been listening to this podcast for long enough, you definitely should. Um, you can get it on Hoopla right now at no cost to you. As of today's date, August 14th, 2023.
0: It sounds very cool. Uh, I've yeah, been looking forward to seeing it. Um, I like that a lot of South American movies are in that like calm, psychedelic, magical realist vibe where it, it is very matter-of-fact. I'm thinking of like recent movies like... Ikaros was one I really liked, Monos.
1: I mean, that's the place that's like synonymous with the genre. So right. if it's not there, then where would it be done well? <laughs> well,
0: there's also the ones that we've talked about recently, like Baccarat and yeah. um, Embrace of the Serpent. Like there's this whole kind of like, it's not organized enough to be called a movement, but I think just the means of producing films has been a lot easier recently it, with digital filmmaking in particular and a lot of that stuff, like that genre, as we would describe it, like is moving from long form written fiction into independent filmmaking. And it's very cool to see it expressed visually instead of like on the page yeah. with the same sort of like matter of fact. Like, I don't need to draw attention to this. It's just kind of part of the ebb and flow of nature that there is like things that are unexplained mixed in with reality. Yeah, I, I'm just really excited by filmmaking coming from that region of the world right now. Yeah. I know I'm I'm into it. I love it.
2: Um that's all I've watched though. Ali, what have you been watching?
1: Um, so I have basically uh spent a lot of my time getting caught up on uh Star Trek, uh, Strange New Worlds. Um, so I have not actually watched a whole lot of movies. Sorry, y'all. But I have been really enjoying Strange New Worlds still. So we might have a uh, swamp track soon.
0: Yeah. Wet your appetite for that, folks. Yeah. <laughs> Basically the only time that movies are not the main topic.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> this is the
0: one funny. other time it's happened was the last time y'all did Swamp Trek. Even when Brittany made me watch episodes of Real Housewives for the show, I made her tie it into a cinematic topic and we watched a bunch of Denise Richards movies to go with it. Swamp Trek is the one independent voyage away from uh cinema as a subject.
1: I think part of it is like we don't um we don't have you like involved with the recording process. Yeah. So we, we break away, we we really rebel when, when you're not around, you know.
2: And I am okay with that. Not until November when we make you watch First Contact.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, I've been watching Allie's favorite subject myself. I've been watching a bunch of superhero movies oh, in the past couple nice. weeks. Yeah. Uh in particular, I really liked that new Ninja Turtles movie, so I've been oh, on yay. Ninja Turtles well, kick.
1: That's different.
0: <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it's the same. Um, <laughs> but I've been watching like every Ninja Turtles movie. I think I'm gonna rank them the same way I did with the Alien series last year. Oh good. Instead of like actually reviewing the new one that's out in theaters. Uh, this has led me down some weird rabbit holes, though, and in particular from the library, I got a Blu-ray of Batman versus Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from 2019. Oh, there's a whole micro industry of animated Batman movies out there. Yes, we did one for Movie of the Month one time. We did Under the Red Hood, which was very good. I'm glad to hear you say so. I liked Still it after all this time.
1: Yeah,
0: I'm
2: glad that it's maintained a presence in your mind, unlike Star Trek VI: The Undiscovered Country. Yeah, I don't remember that movie
0: at all. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I did also enjoy Batman Ninja a few years ago. I don't remember when that came out. Is that the one where he meets Jackie
2: Chan? I don't believe so. (laughs) Wait, no, that's a more recent one. Because you're right, there are a ton of these. And they've been straight to like Max for a while. And it's not Jackie Chan. Oh my God, it's Bruce Lee.
0: But we did Jackie Chan last episode, and he was Bruce
2: Lee's stunt double, so you're yeah, not far off. That's <laughs> probably what made my my brain do that. But it's like it's like Batman Enter the Dragon or something completely ridiculous like that. Uh, I haven't seen
0: that. Uh, Jackie Chan also voiced Splinter in the uh, Ninja Turtles movies that's in the theaters right now. <laughs> oh
1: my god!
0: <laughs> so Batman versus Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, though, like
1: so it's it versus them.
0: Yes, initially, but then Whoa, they team up. Okay. So it is part of that, you know, DC has a whole, it's, it feels like a a assembly line where they just like pump out two or three Batman movies a year. um, And they all go straight to video and straight to DVD. Partially probably because libraries buy them because kids rent them. What I found very funny about this one is that like, you have to be old enough to be nostalgic for Batman, the animated series to be interested in this at all, which I am. And you also have to be like juvenile enough to like care about the Ninja Turtles, (laughs) which I also am. Because like kids are kind of fascinated by the Ninja Turtles as characters in ways that they cannot explain.
1: The Ninja Turtles. Oh my gosh.
0: That has not changed at all in the past few decades. No. A constant. I think part of that is also like where
2: we shouldn't undersell the like parental aspect of this where it's a movie that you can watch with your kids because it's things that you're
0: nostalgic for?
1: No, it's more than that. It's an unexplainable,
0: like, it factor with them. Yeah. Like, there's just, like, a fascination with that character, with those character designs in a way that, like, just can't be explained. I watched this whole yeah. documentary about the Ninja Turtles because recently we did, like, a product placement episode. Um, we talked about their long-term relationship with Pizza Hut on that episode, but... Yeah. Uh, I watched this whole documentary trying to get to, like, the root of it. It's called Turtle Power.
1: And, like... Nice.
0: Even the people who designed the characters as a sort of, like, joke making fun of Daredevil still had no explanation for why it caught on. It was just like, there's just something about those turtles.
1: There really is, like... I so the reason i say oh no it's more than that is one of the kids i used to watch was like obsessed with teenage mutant ninja turtles in a way that her mother just like did not understand in any way shape or form and i was like you know that's just a thing
0: <laughs> and what's funny about the batman team up with them and it does start with them as like foes where like batman is what are these mutants like doing in the sewers these like shadowy ninjas like uh you know they must be up to no good and eventually they all team up to fight both shredder and raza and it's just funny like yes there is like a overlap in like parents being nostalgic for this stuff and their kids being the correct age for it and the the jokes in the movie are still the same like Calabunga dude like turtlelicious righteous, radical, like, catchphrase machine stuff than the Ninja Turtles always do. Right. But the DC movies, because they are straight-to-DVD, are all, like, PG-13-rated violence. So, like, when they actually start doing ninja martial arts, they draw blood. Especially yeah. Batman and Raphael. They punch people's faces and blood comes out, which I I do not associate with children's media at all. What a weird paradigm. Yeah, it's it's a weird, like, middle zone where you have to be both old enough and juvenile enough to like appreciate both sides of it and i just found it a very odd movie uh if you do fa- find yourself in that like gray area eventually the ooze that mutated the turtles in the first place uh falls in the hands of the joker and he creates oh, jokerfied God. ooze i need i need to repeat this oh my God. joker-fied ooze <laughs>
1: Oh. which
0: turns uh anyone who comes in contact with it into a mutant
2: villain i love this i love this idea i love it i'm much more interested in this than i am in the new one like you know you saw it so i'm assuming you're going to tell us that you had a really good time with it but i every time for one thing they played the commercial for it twice the advertisement for it twice before barbie and that made me sick of it already uh, in addition to the all the joe rogan-ness of it all Joe Rogan, what are you talking about? What I mean, Seth Rogan. Sorry. Oh my God.
1: Whoa.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. I, I said a I said a cursed
0: name.
1: Whoa. I meant Not Seth Rogen.
0: I am here to report, which I already said last episode, but it is like arguably the best Ninja Turtles movie. The first one from the night from the early '90s is probably slightly better, but it is a very good film. Maybe one of my favorite movies I've seen all year. I don't, I don't really need to defend it. It's like a Grotesque mutation of the Spider Verse animation style in a way that's really fun. Um, okay. It's got a great Nine Inch Nails style soundtrack from Trent Reznor himself.
1: So weird to me. <laughs>
0: Made me laugh a lot. I don't know. It's very fun. Knowing that you are open
2: to animated uh, Ninja Turtles uh, content now, I would recommend the like crossover that they had between the Nickelodeon CGI Ninja Turtles and the like '80s animated. Ninja Turtles, uh thing that came out, I, gosh, probably probably 10 years ago now. It is on my list cuz I'm watching
0: them all. <laughs> okay. I I was calling Mutant Mayhem, which is the one that is in theaters right now. I was calling it the best Ninja Turtles movie in decades. And then I thought to myself, how would I know that for a fact? How would you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got to do the research.
1: Yeah, that's true. It does make you sound like an expert right. on the quality of the Ninja Turtles movies.
0: Yeah, I'm skipping over a lot of animated stuff in the meantime, because I've definitely seen all the live-action ones before. So yeah, I'm doing the homework right now. And I would say the homework, the Batman crossover movie, is a fun one. It's not as good as Mutant Mayhem, but it is a good sidetrack in that Batman thing that they're doing, where they just like throw Batman in weird scenarios now. I saw a steampunk one with him called like Gotham Knights a couple of years ago. Oh,
2: you mean um gotham by gaslight that's the one yeah oh it's terrible isn't it
0: not very good no
1: i i've heard of the comic i didn't know that they made the movie a little too
0: serious it needed some cowabunga dude pizza one thing that
2: i will say about oh my god they just had one that came out that was like an hp lovecraft batman oh that's (laughs) the one
1: i'm talking about yeah okay that one was
2: it was fine uh, what i will say is it's not just a cottage industry of these batman movies it's that they're dc like animated direct to video features but the problem is people love batman too much and so it used to be like back when i was in late college and in grad school they were putting out like one or two of these a year and there was like a wonder woman feature and then like a green lantern feature and then like a an adaptation of darwin cooks sort of 50s style New Frontier comic and it was done in all these different kinds of art styles but algorithmically it's been whittled down to just like two Batman movies a year that even if they are conceptually different like Steampunk or H.P. Lovecraft or Ninja Turtles or whatever they all still look the same so Mm -hmm. uh I would recommend you know if you're a listener and you want to try something uh if you like this uh, what, what Brandon recommends there is a world of that but maybe don't just search for Batman, go to like the DC hub on HBO max and, or just max, I guess. And there's more to it than that. And you did, uh, you know, mention under the red hood. I still think to me, that's the best one, but that's because I love how weird and nihilistic and kind of like sad it is.
0: I've got a bat for Batman Ninja, which was like the anime take on Batman and like gave Japanese animators like free reign to use, Man is like pop art iconography and do whatever they want with it, and it looked yeah, really that, cool. That
1: does sound really cool,
0: yeah. It was fun, yeah. Into that, and I would
2: again recommend I found the name, it's Turtles Forever. Uh, it is not the CGI Nickelodeon Turtles, that is a Mandela effect in my brain. Uh, but it was a 2009 animated movie, uh, where the 2003 Turtles uh, cross over with the 1987 Turtles.
1: Oh, that's the one that the kid I used to watch was obsessed with. So, yeah.
2: Well, and rightfully so, then. So I I rest my case. It's on my homework list. I will report back uh, as soon as I get to it. Shit, maybe I need to watch that one, too.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we're all just going to watch Ninja Turtle movies by the time everybody is listening to this again.
0: Hey, man, when I went through the whole Alien series, it culminated in us talking about the entire franchise. So, uh... Unfortunately, that might happen again with something much sillier. I also got from the library on the same hall the new Guardians of the Galaxy movie, Volume 3 from this year. Yes. I liked half of it. <laughs> uh, okay, so there's like two movies going on here. One is like Rocket Raccoon's backstory, where he just gets mm-hmm. tortured as a young baby raccoon, and it's like so over the top. In that like Sarah McLaughlin, like, won't you please call to donate to save these animals from being gassed kind of, like, mawkishness. And then the other half is the other team members from Guardians of the Galaxy, like the titular Guardians, traveling to rescue Rocket from his past and his incapacitated body as he's, like, warging out, remembering what happened to him. And I gotta say, the half that, like, had all the, like, weird experiments with these baby animals that are tormented and like it really goes so far over the top that it's like both a little too sentimental and also like really sarcastic and feels like it's like fucking with you a little bit oh my god thank you
2: It's so weird. <laughs> I feel exactly the same way and every person that I have talked to has responded as if I am the coldest, most heartless asshole on the planet. Because I and I don't know, maybe I poison the well because I wrote about that in my review months ago, but to me it seems like a parody of what most people are reading it as and I don't know
0: how intentional it is. I think it's doing both in a way that's like playful. Like, there's a little bit of tension between, like, sometimes it's like the torture is so cruel that you have to take it seriously. And sometimes the animals make the biggest, like, most pathetic eyes direct to the camera. That you're like, okay, this guy who grew up making trauma movies is fucking with me. And he's, he's a prankster at yes. heart. Yes, yes. Thank you. Oh my god, I feel so validated. So that part <laughs> I thought was really interesting. And I think Rocket Raccoon is the heart of the story, so it makes sense that they're going to, like say goodbye to this phase of these characters that like he would be the center of the text. Like I get all that. The other half though, with all the characters being like, this is like what happened when we were on planet bleep Lorp and this person fell <laughs> in the cavern and forgot their past because of the infinity stone. And, you know, this reminds me of when the Hulk went haywire and this other thing is like draining me. Like it felt so incoherent bouncing back and forth between this adventure to save rocket and rockets like tortured memories that like, I so wish that this were not a guardians movie and this were just like a rocket side story. Cause it felt like that's the movie James Gunn wanted to make and like all of the obligatory tying it into the larger MCU and referencing all these things, these characters have been through in the past and like, going through the motions of putting together another ipod playlist and the songs are just so uninspired and uninteresting i was just like i wish this weren't a guardians movie i wish it were a tortured animals in space movie uh in the old trauma style from james gunn and i will say that stuff smoothed out a little bit when they meet on the suburbanite reagan era planet and like their two stories merge, and they start working as a team again. I was like, okay, I start to feel the team dynamic and like the emotional upswell of the story of these like uh, you know misfits who found each other and this like found family in space story. Like I started to feel the old Guardians feels because this is like one of the better sub franchises under the MCU umbrella, I think. And I would agree. For half of the movie, I could not, for the life of me, remember why I liked it so much until they were a full team again. And I was just like, I wish I hadn't wasted so much time listening to the worst Chris bounce jokes off of Dave Bautista under all that makeup. It was just like, I feel like I've been set free by Avengers Endgame where I don't have to keep checking in with this stuff anymore. Yeah. I don't know why I came back to this other than I love that talking raccoon so much and his stuff was the best part of the movie. I think we've talked about this a
2: little bit both here and I've definitely written about it where I agree that like Endgame is like a finale and it, it's right. structured like a finale it is it brings everything to a close and even though from that point you might like spin off something here or there because they were never going uh, there was never any way that this franchise was going to end it won't end until the human race is dead like they're going to be making these until we're all dead and in hell
1: but it's going to be more the style of like animated batman movies eventually
2: i regret to inform you we are already there
1: you don't have to regret informing me that. <laughs>
2: <No>. <laughs> I I completely agree. I, uh, Brandon, I will say one of the things that I thought about whenever I went to see the movie was I had a professor who said something to me once. And this is a very random thing to get stuck in my head. But she told me once, unprepared for class is unprepared for class. And as someone who also did not watch like the Guardians holiday special, who cares? You know, I haven't been watching all of the shows or anything. I watched like Kat and I watched WandaVision and we enjoyed that one fine. And we watched Loki and we enjoyed that one fine. And then they had the uh, Winter Soldier Captain America one. And it was so like pro military right in that first episode that I was like, I don't I don't have the stomach for this and haven't really bothered keeping up with it at all from there. Like. What 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 I was thinking when you were talking about it was I was like oh it sounds like you didn't do your homework but I didn't either and I don't think anybody should be expected to at this point mm. it's too much.
0: What felt so weird about it though was like I felt like I have done the homework, even though like okay the movie starts in this like sort of guardians commune that I missed whatever connective piece set that up, but like there were references to characters and there were reoccurring villains that definitely were in movies that I have seen but I haven't seen a guardians movie in like 5 years and like that information has been erased by much more interesting films and like it's not something that I rewatch over and over again I don't know the lore I don't read the comics I don't spend my free time listening to YouTube experts break down the little easter eggs and like you know callbacks and all this stuff like i have no idea what's going on even though i feel like i have done the homework it was just years ago right and like you're saying like it's gonna be very slow for this behemoth industry to change and adapt to that idea that people don't necessarily follow every new disney plus special and sitcom and you know i assume loki's a sitcom because he's a comic character it's more dr Huey. Okay. I think. But yeah, I I think that they're going to have to adjust to the fact that people aren't following along for every episode, but it takes years to make one of these in the first place. So they might actually lose the audience entirely by the time they react to that. Yeah. And I mean, it was a different situation when they were
2: putting out one movie a year or two movies a year. And then they started to really approach market saturation in a negative way right before the pandemic hit. And then everyone was trapped at home with, you know, a free month of Disney Plus. And they were able to, I think, rely on people subscribing and watching those shows because they didn't have anything better to do. And we were all under quarantine. Um, And then what happened is that everybody realized they were sick to fucking death of it and decided to move on. And that's where we are now. Where we are now, where they're still trying to plant the seeds for whatever's coming next, to the point where the films become more of an Easter egg uh, delivery system, and uh, it's more sowing than reaping all the time now
1: with right. what
2: they're planting. And it's so exhausting, and people are sick of it. I mean, we're sick of it. We had a feature about these movies that we haven't done in over five years now, and I have no interest in resuming it because I'm 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 sick of it. And we approached that feature because I loved them.
0: And that's just where we're at now, I guess. And the next phase is going to be us getting absolutely fucking sick to death from Mattel product placement movies even oh, though yes. Barbie is a very good film. <laughs> we're going to be like fucking Foie gras with so much Mattel product placement in the next few <laughs> years that we're going to hate Greta Gerwig and curse her name. Uh, but as of now, you know, the feelings are still posi. Uh Speaking of being prolific, to so the point where people don't actually pay attention to everything you put out, uh, I did see a Werner Herzog movie that I'd never heard of before until I happened to buy the DVD <laughs> used. I saw this movie called Invincible from 2001. Are y'all aware of this Herzog relic? Oh, no,
1: I am not. Oh my gosh, and I I felt like I I knew his like weirder like more recent ones. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I haven't heard of this one.
0: Uh, I would put it in a vague superhero category in the way okay. that like I saw a movie this year called Freaks vs. the Reich, um, that was a superhero film set during World War II. And had very similar thematic overlap with Guardians of the Galaxy Three, including um, a Radiohead needle drop. The Herzog movie, though, is told more in this fairy tale fable style. Uh, it's supposedly based on a true story, but it's really exaggerated. Um, it's set in the 1930s in Poland. There's this Jewish blacksmith who's very young. He's like you know he's just coming out of his teenage years, and he is superhuman strong like he is just absolutely the strongest man in his village and can achieve impossible feats of muscle boy strength Um, but he's not very bright and the more he draws attention to himself as like the strongest man in the world who also happens to be jewish in the 30s the more trouble he gets into and it eventually draws him to berlin as a sideshow act where he is working under Tim Roth, who plays this like mesmerist that the Nazis are in love with. Uh, Tim Roth is running this cabaret style review, and I mean cabaret like as in the feature film, um, where he is putting on hypnosis acts for this audience of like Nazi generals, uh, who believe that his supernatural abilities are gonna win the war for Hitler.
1: Nazis did love that stuff so much. <laughs>
0: Yeah, they're like he's gonna be part of Hitler's cabinet. Uh, this, it's like master of the dark arts, and his initial idea is to hide the strongman's Jewish background. He's gonna be like this Aryan god uh, that's gonna like show the strength of like what these people can do, uh, what what the uh, supermensch can do once generated in a lab, but instead. The strongman gets fed up after a while, and like takes off the blonde wig. They slap on him. He's like, I'm actually Jewish and I can perform these feats of strength. And it turns into this like pro wrestling thing. It reminded me of like when Herzog talks about why he loves WWE, like the Nazis in the crowd are booing him. And then these like Jewish audiences start showing up. This is before Hitler's in power. This is when like the brown shirts are still this like rising army of hooligans that are like taking over. It's very much like Hertz like remaking Cabaret in a way, but it's got this like circus sideshow act quality to it, and so like the two sides are being race baited against each other for like ticket sales, in a way that like wrestling is at its worst uh, qualities, and yeah, his like superhuman strength, um, and his like noble heart eventually win this like temporary battle against the Nazis, and then history tells you that in the long run. Um, the story must become tragic, but uh, there's this like sort of like in the moment triumph of the strong man, Jewish villager, going to the big city in Berlin and taking over this like circus act. And I think with a couple changes, it would be one of Herzog's like better respected films. Like it's got this Hans Zimmer score that is just screaming in every scene. Like we want Oscars, send us Oscars, <laughs> and. At the same time, all of the European actors who are not recognizable, like, the only two name actors I could cite are Tim Roth and Udo Kier. Ooh. They're both very good. But, like, all the other actors seem as if they're speaking phonetic English in post-production dubs. And, like, I feel like without the score and with everyone just speaking their native language or speaking German or Polish the movie would be very well respected, but instead it just kind of feels like an Oscar buzz schlock, but I'm fucking in love with all circus act movies. Like it's one of my easiest triggers to like fall in love with something. And this has this kind of like, if Todd Browning made a fairy tale about this, like super strong Jewish man who took on the Nazis feel to it. Um, it's just a very strange movie to have never heard of whatsoever. Even though it came out when I was in high school. Sold. So
1: yeah, I was gonna say, it's just, like, that weird, like, niche, bizarre-era, like, Herzog shit that, like, I'm a sucker for that, so <laughs> I'm just like, yes, please, give me Bad Lieutenant-era Herzog nonsense, I will eat it up.
0: Yeah, and, you know, Bad Lieutenant has those moments of just, like, weird whimsy, like, well, oh he'll God. stare at the yes. iguana, <laughs> and like, yes, the, I do. who just kind of holds there. Uh what was the one with Michael Shannon?
1: Uh my really Shannon well. what have you done?
0: Yeah, that yeah, one that has like great. these sort of like empty just staring off into the distance moments. Focus um that I think Invincible has as some well. yeah. Yeah. It's, it's great. So th- there's just something about his search for prestige that sort of undercuts that artsier impulse in him, but um if you can like deal with a little bit of corniness, uh, that area of his filmmaking is very fascinating.
2: I have to ask the strongman and in Invincible. How hot is he?
0: He is a beefy boy. <laughs> He's got like that um, traditional strongman physique where it's not like chiseled abs. Uh, it's like his, his body has that upside down triangle effect to it, where it, you oh, could tell he favorite. could like pull a truck with just his like gigantic legs, you know? OK, I have to stop you now or else we're going to have to end early. <laughs> man, the first time anyone n- ever came on Mike Fascinating milestone in Swalick's mystery. Who is mine I'm calling on all the spirits
1: of everyone who's ever died in this house. Jessica I'm calling on all the spirits of everyone who's
2: ever died in this house. Jessica, my eyes, look in my eyes. Come, Come with me. Come.
0: Come with me. Follow me, Jessica. Follow me. I
2: won't go away. I'll go away. All right, for this week's episode, I had everyone watch the 1971 independent horror film let's scare jessica to death uh which was co-written and directed by john hancock um but not the one you're thinking of uh and oddly enough the only other movie of his i've ever seen is the 1989 christmas fantasy drama prancer um (laughs) although i have at least heard of bang the drum slowly uh his other movies don't know anything about him very strange that like he made this movie which Has a pretty strong cultural impact, at least in like the cult classic uh, sort of section of the video store, which is where we would be if we were uh, a video (laughs) tape. Um, I was convinced that the first time I had heard about this movie was reading about it in Douglas Brody's Edge of Your Seat, which is a compendium of like the hundred greatest thrillers of all time, which I had a copy of this book that I've been, like, making my own markings in ever since I was a child, like, using the contents page as a checklist and, like, noting when I watched a movie and giving it my own star rating. And I was 100% certain that I had first heard about this movie through that, which does explain why I was not prepared for it to be a sort of supernatural thriller. Uh, Because that book is only about, there's very little like supernatural films listed in that compendium. Uh, One of the big ones, and it's also like at the very bottom of the list at number 100, and the most recent film in that book at the time of publication was The Others. Um, But that's about like the only one with any kind of like ghost spirituality to it. Um, Most of The Others are movies that we've covered um, in some way or that we would have all seen. But I was unprepared for this movie to have sort of a supernatural element, But that means that it took me by surprise, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. The plot of this film is that uh, this woman, Jessica, has recently been released from a place where she was receiving some kind of mental care. um and she and her husband, uh, who is a professional musician with a new heart New York Philharmonic, but who has given up his position and used the last of his savings, To buy an apple farm in Connecticut for him to take Jessica to so that she is not um, under the same constant stresses uh, mentally that she is under in the city. And they bring along um, their hippie friend Woody and they arrive in town in their like old school hearse, you know, with all of their stuff, go up to this farmhouse and find that there is a woman who is squatting there. And instead of kicking her out, because Jessica is so sweet, she convinces the others to let her stay. Um, From there, things get um, spooky. Uh, First, the woman, whose name is Emily, insists that they perform a seance after dinner. Um, Jessica, later while searching through the attic, while looking for things for the uh, group to sell so that they can have some grocery folding money, discovers... um, a photograph of a woman who looks a lot like Emily from a 100 years ago. And they get a warning from an antiques dealer in town that says that uh, one of the daughters of the Bishop family who owned the farm before they bought it is rumored to be some kind of vampire. And that occurs over halfway through the movie. And up to that point, at least personally i had no idea that it was going to be a vampire story and then it was and i really enjoyed it um i do know that this one is kind of a slower moving movie so before i say anything else about it i want to i want to hear what y'all think
1: i really enjoyed this a lot and uh, i think it does that thing you like
2: it does the opposite of that thing that i like but i like it.
1: is that thing that you like
2: no the thing that i like is when it's the other way
1: but i didn't think it was one way or the other by the end of it
2: mm. uh, <laughs> uh, this is like the opposite of diabolique where i was like there's nothing supernatural in this movie and y'all were like no there is I know. um but in this one i I, th- I think my interpretation is that um jessica is mentally ill but that doesn't mean that emily is not a vampire simply because of the way that things happen with all of the other people in the town
0: and the breaking point is that she keeps seeing this third woman this sort of like blonde woman in this like sort of timeless white nightgown running around in the wilderness especially by the river and she's like trying very hard not to let on that she's been seeing and hearing things Not only is she like Mm -hmm. seeing these sort of ghostly um, apparitions out in New England, but she's also hearing the vampire whisper her directly, like basically summoning and seducing her to drown in the water herself. And she's like really holding back. She does not want to go back to the hospital. She doesn't want her husband to like dump her off in some facility. She wants to like live a normal life. So like,
1: yeah, I was going to say nobody wants to go to the hospital in those days of electric shock therapy. Right.
0: So, she, she's playing the game of being sane. She's like, I, I'm yeah. gonna see this blonde woman running around and it's okay to just ignore it and not say anything, and that way I can get by and just live this, like, peaceful life with my husband out here in nature. And the breaking point is when the husband also sees the blonde woman. And she's right. like, oh, you yeah. see that? That's real? And that person never explains themselves and is never like explained in the text about like where she fits in the Emily lore but like in the larger context of the movie like a lot of stuff is ambiguous as to how this all works and like the difference between a ghost and a vampire is very like shaky here and it's like yeah. really hard to know what the mechanics are but it doesn't really matter what matters is that like she is led to believe that she is insane because she's having all these very internal experiences that like could be hallucinations, but she's dampening it down. And then there is a point where there's very physical evidence that like that stuff is external as well. And the evidence appears as scars on all the men's necks in town. Yeah. Who've been the victims of this ghost vampire figure. And like at that point it's like just validating that like she is seeing the world as it is and all these men that are telling her that she's like you know weak of mind and being like overtaken by her body's rebellion against her mind like she is validated by the fact that this thing is real and then like has to kind of overcome the seduction of like killing herself basically by drowning in the water Uh, even though that sounds very nice and like relaxing in its own way Because it would put an end to the torment. Yeah, I I think it's worth
2: noting that we get the first clue about that. Not that she has, you know, things that other people can't see, but that like the importance of someone else validating it is that she sees Emily moving around upstairs and immediately either her husband or their buddy is like, no, it's okay, Jessica, I see it, too. Like they're very reaffirming. And I, I will say my expectation about what this movie was going to be about both because i assumed it was just a thriller and also because the title is let's scare jessica to death i was under the impression that that might have been like sort of a spoiler title that in fact they yeah
1: i thought they were gonna pull a diabolical yeah gaslighting
2: they took her out right there well. to, <laughs> to gaslight her and that i was pleasantly and, and when you have that in mind, whenever the buddy or whoever is like, no, it's okay, I see her too, you're still already kind of like, mm, what's going on here? You know, you're still tweaked to not trust that person, like they're lulling her into a false sense of security to continue to trick her. Um, but then that's not what it's about. It's just about how men are weak to vampiric ghost ladies. Um, I also think the girl that we see I, my understanding of that situation is that she brought jessica to see the antique dealer's dead body to try and warn her
1: mm-hmm.
0: my assumption is that she's the previous jessica like she's been driven mad by this yeah. ghost because uh, all the men in town are under her spell but that one victim that's running around in the night does not appear to be one of Emily's soldiers, you know, right. And it's worth noting, you say, you know, all of the men in town, but it is important that
2: it's only men in town, right? There aren't any women anywhere other than
0: her.
1: She's killed off all her competition. Well, her
0: goal appears to be to seduce everyone, right? So, like, she wants to seduce the men to be these sort of like sex slaves that are like just sort of enamored with her and like follow her bidding, and she wants to seduce the women to end their own lives and join her under the water. It's a very, like binary thing. she She is seducing Jessica in a very, like similar way. And I, I do think this movie has, yeah, kind of like a swingers era, like Bob and Ted and Carol and Alice. I was say, it. I I also thought
1: it was a swingers thing happening. but and they kind of stepped back from that a little bit, like her first
0: anxiety about this, like intruder in her home. Like, she wants to set her up with the third wheel, because they have this kind of hippie friend that followed them up to Connecticut. And she's like, oh, my friend really digs this girl. I'm not going to kick her out of the house. I want to see if that can lead to something for him romantically. It's a very nice gesture. Um, And then when that love connection is conquered by Emily and she moves on to seducing Jessica's husband, that's when Jessica starts getting, like, second thoughts about setting them up like that. And there's there's this kind of like free love dynamic in the house where like people are just sort of trading partners in that like free love era way. Um, but that doesn't exclude Jessica. Like she is also seduced by the vampire ghost. It's just her fate is different. Her fate is not to be a zombie under her spell. Her fate is to like join her under the water.
2: Yeah. And I will say I, I think the first hint that we get that uh, she, she clearly sees that her husband is attracted to this woman whenever they have the duet. Right. Where he comes in and he plays his, mm-hmm. his double bass. And, you know, uh, we haven't established this in, in our discussion of it, but this is a movie where we hear the internal monologue of our lead character throughout the movie. Um, and it's interesting because it's all in these weird little whispery uh, David Lynch, Dune voices where you know everybody's interior monologue it's like when it's externalized it's intentionally done with this like whisper to make it i don't know it's an interesting effect and it's it's good it's makes for a, a more creepy movie in this one i think especially because as you were saying she starts to hear the basically this vampire woman is glamoring her as we understand like the vampire glamour from various other pieces of of bloodsucker media where she is literally gaslighting her with her mental powers to the point where you know she clearly manipulates the seance so that she can speak into jessica's mind as we realize in retrospect you know once we find out more about what's actually going on here to make jessica think that she is hearing the voices of spirits living in the house in the seance where that is undercutting jessica's confidence in her own uh belief in reality like she gets that affirmation yes i see her too but then just a couple of scenes later the seance uh takes place and she is being manipulated by this vampire woman into hearing voices that the others don't hear to further like you know kind of isolate and distance her
0: And that fits in with a literary tradition that I think the people who wrote this movie were aiming for. Like, they were going for, like, Carmilla or, like, Turn of the Screw.
1: And I was about to say, um, all of those things also, like, inspired by the New England Vampire Panic, which has those vibes as well.
0: What is the New England Vampire Panic?
1: okay so this actually happened um it is what a lot of vampire fiction is based on in rhode island and a bunch of other places um i forget the exact years there was like an outbreak of tuberculosis and so people were dying from that but based on like a lot of the symptoms of like being pale and the blood and all of that they thought it was vampires and they would like go to the graves of, like, recently deceased people of tuberculosis and, like, take apart their bodies. Oh. Yeah, and so another thing that uh they did was they realized, like, oh, no, the bodies aren't decomposing when it was, like, winter in Rhode Island. Like, the bodies are going to take forever to decompose anyway. Anyway, it was, like, a big whole deal in New England during that time that, like, a vampire
0: man they're really into vampires and witches there Uh, any any way to like condemn women to death i guess
1: 1892 was the most like famous one
0: okay but what strikes me about this though is like maybe i don't know if that was like a conscious decision to speak to that you know real life story and tie it into this like grander literary tradition of like older ghost stories or vampire tales in the case of carmilla but what they did in the process was they made a movie that's very much of its time. And if it's, if it's yeah. ahead of its time in any way, it's just by like a couple of years. Cause like a lot of the titles that are coming up in my mind are like Robert Altman's images, the movie, the witch that came from the sea uh, Messiah of evil. They're all very like 1970s daytime horror about women on the verge of a nervous breakdown that have this yeah. sort of like, yeah. you know, <laughs> but it's this like feminist style of like, horror psychedelia that came out at that time where there's just a very like-minded thread thematically through all these different movies. I mean, this was just a very good example of that micro genre in that decade. Yeah. And if it does anything, that's a little, if, if it does anything, that's like a step further from most of those, it's like tying that into the death of hippie culture. And like all of the grumpy men that are under emily spell in town are all like arch conservative hippie haters who are very grumpy and they're shot in these like really grotesque close-ups these sort of local yokels who hate this new blood that's coming in town and like the sour mood in the house that erupts before the vampirism comes to the surface is all about how free love is like not working uh within this like little family unit that forms And like, Mm -hmm. that's the bend that feels a little unique to this one in that micro genre is like all those movies are about men not believing women when they're saying something is like going wrong. Or even the men driving the women to insanity on purpose sometimes, which I guess the title uh, leads you to believe is what's going on. But in this case, that is also tied into like the misogyny just under the surface of the hippie movement. And like how that movement sort of died, even though it was very idealistic, there's like this sort of ugly undercurrent to it that I found very distinct to this one example. I
2: was, I was, I was, I was headed that way. I was also headed that way because uh, there. What you were saying, Ellie, about this doing the thing that I like—it doesn't. It does the opposite, but it is my favorite genre, women on the verge. And yeah. like you know, we all know that I love this. It's my favorite thing. It's you know. Women on the verge and tiny tiny people are the two things that I love most in my movies.
1: <laughs> now um, we need to find a tiny tiny woman on the verge of a nervous breakdown.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would oh. watch that movie. I would watch that would movie until like that? the tape broke. You should write that movie.
1: Yeah, you Shit, should. Shit, let
2: me write that down. <laughs> Wait, actually, you know what that actually is already in something I'm writing. Hmm.
1: Well, mm. all right, oh, here we well- are.
2: Um Yeah. So, you know, there is a lot of, um, I was specifically thinking about Images as well, whenever I watched this, because, uh, you know, Images has that one, I mean, one perfect, like, segue in it. One of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in a movie where uh, the main character is up on top of the, like, cliff that she's about to drive down to the house where she's going to stay. And then she looks down and she's already there. And then the camera cuts to her down at the house, looking up at the cliff where she just was. It's one of the most, like, I don't think I've ever seen anything that so perfectly captured, like the feeling of dissociation as like that, like 10 second sequence. Like it's so good. And I was thinking about that a lot in this one because Jessica is clearly, she's, we can't say that she's not unwell. Um And she's been through so much. And she has, you know, clearly been under professional supervision. She is the woman on the verge. And it just so happens that in this movie, the horrors aren't just in her mind. And that's such a weird, like, it, it's it's surprising that that hasn't been done more. Because, you know, I often talk about, I guess we'll just say it. The thing that I like is whenever a film sets up uh, an ambiguous situation between whether or not something genuinely supernatural is happening Or the events are simply filtered through the perception of a character. And because I think most movies in general that set up that dichotomy uh, do end up coming down on the side of the supernatural. So, for instance, you know, in The Exorcist, Reagan's mother first goes to the doctor, then she goes to the priest, and it does turn out to be a possession. And that's genuine, generally how all of these movies are. The Warrens don't go to a house that's not actually haunted. Um, I mean, in the movies, uh, they don't. (laughs) You know what I mean? They definitely, I mean, let's go ahead and say it right now. The Warrens were were con artists. They they never went to anywhere um, that was haunted. Because, you know, there's no such thing. But... The grifters, yes. (laughs) Yeah, so... For me, I generally, you know, whenever a movie subverts my expectations or subverts what I've come to assume is always going to be the ending, which is always that it's supernatural, I I find it really refreshing when that's not the case. And that's why we call it the thing I like, because most of the time when we're talking about the thing that I like, it's in the context of something that would be spoiled by knowing that.
0: Like when we talk about movies where the answer to the mystery is that there's someone living in the walls, which is a very distinct genre. But anytime you <laughs> cite the movies in the genre you're like spoiling every single one of them.
2: Yeah, I mean yeah. the the one that we can talk about is Bad Ronald because it's not a secret that he's in the walls, but we can't <laughs> we can't even make that comparison because you know, exactly. It 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 spoils exactly what the plot is just to discuss what it is that I like about it. So Uh, You know, we watch so many of these movies, absolutely still one of my, one of my true favorites examples is, you know, Puzzle of a Downfall Child with Faye Dunaway. But then we also have, you know, others in that genre where it's like women who do lose their sanity and lose their minds as the result of these stresses. And it's so strange that so many of them were preceded by a movie that has all of those elements, but it's not in her mind. Which I find really interesting as like a, a, in a way that it presages a lot of things. This also had a lot of Stephen King energy, I felt like, especially with the townspeople. Yeah. You know, whenever they go and they're hostile to these hippie newcomers, which is such a common element, like in his work, not just like people who are hostile to outsiders, but specifically like hippies, which I think is the case in like Children of the Corn and that one short story about the reign of frogs and all of those. And yet, you know, he wasn't famous at this point either. His style wasn't famous. So it like precedes these very big, important women on the verge movies of the 70s. And it also precedes King's work with this like very uh, New England gothic element. And yet this is a movie that most people haven't seen. Like it has like a, a reputation in the underground, which is, you know, why why we heard of it, why I heard of it, why we watched it. But it
0: doesn't seem to have a lot of mainstream presentation. Well, it's true American indie filmmaking, and like a smart way to get your movie seen over the decades is to make it a horror film or a genre movie in some way, because there's always gonna be some like horror nerd that's like, "What is the 170s horror gem I haven't seen yet? Let me dig around." Uh, yeah, what screams of a winter night? <laughs> I've actually never heard of that one, so I'm gonna write that down. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, this is like. Low-budget indie filmmaking. It was picked up for, like, actual mainstream distribution, but it was made without mainstream funding. And, like, when I think of what American indie filmmaking is, it looks like this. And there is a lot of, like, really beautiful art within that. Like, the underwater visions of the ghost with her hair Flowing just under the waves and the fabric of her like old-timey nightgown, mm-hmm. and this is in the early 1970s, and it has a very bizarre analog synth score to it as well, because of this like real dreamlike yeah. quality. I love this
1: score. <laughs> oh, it's great. Yeah.
0: So like, there's a real artistry to it, made on a budget, and smartly applied to a genre template that will have it seen for years to come. Like, I think a drama made with this sensibility at this time would not carry over like the amount of like movies like wanda from barbara loden that have like carried over the years uh is very minuscule compared to like the infinite examples of psychedelic daytime horror we just cited about women losing their minds in the woods or on the beach (laughs) fair enough (laughs) Uh, speaking of like nature though like the woods and the beach like I, I just happened to go on this like getaway to a river in Mississippi this weekend and like I was just watching this before the trip and just thinking like, you know, we're in the sunshine, everyone's drinking wine, having conversation over dinner and playing these like acoustic duets, swimming, antiquing, like if it weren't for all the vampirism and hallucinations and stuff, this would be like a really pleasant getaway. Yeah. No.
1: I would hang out with these guys. <laughs> yeah,
0: it was a really nice, like, little vacation movie until. I, mean, uh, I feel
1: Jessica a little too deeply, but I would hang out with these guys.
0: <laughs> I was thinking about you, um, in particular because I remember you saying you had a hard time watching Horse Girl, uh, which is a very and I was similar. I just gonna to say template. this.
1: This is kind of in that same category almost, where some parts of it I was like, "Oh no, uh, <laughs> oh no," two real nervous breakdown times.
0: I mean that. I think that's probably a testament to it being a, a well-made movie,
1: though. Yeah, <laughs> it, it sounds, is. I like, think that's part of authentic. why I, I really liked it. I was like, "Oh yeah, mm-hmm. same."
0: <laughs> so yeah, it's just a really well-made, low-budget, independent film. I mean, there's really not much else to say about it other than like, it is part of these larger traditions, and it is part of its time as well. But it has enough artistic merit on its own right. Uh, that works in the moment in a way that's like borderline psychedelic. Like it makes you feel very strange. Um, that, that's kind of why I was citing Messiah of Evil earlier, because that's not necessarily a madness movie in the same way. It's more like a Lovecraftian kind of madness. But it's got that like psychedelic feel where you sort of like dissociate while you're watching it because the music's weird enough and the reactions from the local yokels put you on an off feeling. Um, everything has a slightly nightmarish tinge to it and feels very like otherworldly and like outside your body. It's, it's hypnotic, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Uh,
2: you mentioned turning the, the turn of the screw. And one thing, you know, we're talking about this movie and like how beautifully composed it is. This movie started as a satire script entitled, It Drinks Hippie Blood.
0: (laughs) You know, there was a pair of movies with titles like that, uh, one was called like, "I Drink Your Blood" and one was called "I Eat Your Flesh." Yeah, and they were like grindhouse, like satires and like hippie culture.
2: Well, yeah, and this was it. It was going to be about like some hippies like being attracted to a creature that lives in the water and it it drinks hippie blood, which is even more of a spoiler title than uh, "Let's Scare Jessica to Death" would have been if it was about that. But it was purchased and then given to the director, who wanted to make something more interesting. And he said he wanted to create sort of an unreliable narrator, which is kind of a part and parcel and a core element of the, like, Women on the Verge movie. Like, you do have to have an element of an unreliable narrator in order for that to work, because you do have to, like, go into sort of the point of view of this character as they lose it. Um, But he specifically did cite that Jessica's character was influenced by the governess and The Turn of the Screw. Um, When talking about it years later. So you're not wrong. You hit that right on the head.
0: That makes sense. It it does feel very literary in a way, Um, especially since you were already pointing out, like, we get so much of her internal monologue, which is then, like, intruded upon by the vampire. Yeah. But, like, we kind of need to be inside her head for the movie to work. Yeah. Which is very apt to how characters are written on the page, especially in first person. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I, I liked that use of. This first person. Because, you know, sometimes I feel like movies kind of um, a little overboard with the first person voiceover. And uh, I feel like some movies just they balance it perfectly between like the atmosphere and like voiceover. I think one scene that particularly uh, stuck with me is the scene where Emily is telling the story about the rampaging cake. And she's got this like inner monologue about how her husband is like with Emily. Yeah. While this story is going on and there's just like so much clutter, you know, in the sound. It's great.
2: Yeah. And, uh, you know, while we're, we're talking about that, I think that part of it, part of what's so exhausting about it in other works or more recent works is that it's much more common now and has been for a long time now for this sort of um narration to take the form of a direct address to the viewer
1: yes yeah
2: you know oh i'm i'm the wolf of wall street isn't it great to be me you know whatever bullshit where it's just like all from this first person perspective but it's specifically being told as if it is a story to you the audience whereas this has the whisperiness contributes to this but it also has this reality of we don't well, When we, you know, not to speak for everyone or presume the universality of my mental experience, but we don't think in like a storytelling mode. And yeah. so that whisperiness and that unfocused nature of her internal monologue and the fact that it's not addressed to us, it's just what's passing through her mind lends it an element of reality that I think is really important in so far as we don't really know how grounded she is, at least at first.
0: Yeah, most of us think in internal monologue, not in soliloquy.
1: Yeah.
2: Thank you for taking my long-winded and boring <laughs> sentiment and whittling it down to like a precise, concise like idiom. You're right.
0: <laughs> this was a huge pleasure for me. Um and reminded me of uh Maine, which is a movie from this year that's like manufactured to look like it came out in the early seventies. And I think is like a movie that has stuck with me since I saw it in the theater, but in a way that like just reminded me of like how little authentic stuff we get like this nowadays. Uh, one of the things that's playing in New Orleans right now is a 4K restoration of The Wicker Man from the 70s, and like how beautiful it is to see that on the big screen and wow. like a proper presentation.
1: Amazing. Yeah,
0: like that's something I kind of cherish and. Yeah, the more movies that are dredged up that I haven't seen before in this vein, it's always a pleasure. I should have caught up with this sooner.
2: Um, This might seem like a random thought, but I'll also say to any of our listeners who, as a child, enjoyed The Watcher in the Woods, you'll also enjoy this.
0: No Betty Davis to be found on this one, though, unfortunately.
2: You'll just have to double feature this with burnt offerings to get your (laughs) Betty fix.
0: Well, next week on the show, I came up with a loose topic. Because I really wanted to watch this movie called Sick of Myself, which is a movie about art world narcissism um, and like artists trying to one up each other with publicity in ways that are very uncouth. But I wanted to talk about total frauds. We're going to talk about people who are liars. (laughs) And, uh Oh, exciting. Swindle, everyone who comes in contact with them so they can um, oh, draw attention gonna, to themselves.
1: Going to do The Conjuring, right? Yeah,
0: you're going to do The Conjuring movies? <laughs> no, but we should. I, I should rework the program. No, you're saying that. <laughs> We were talking about the uh, and Hot movie. We watched a couple episodes ago for that product placement episode, because that guy just completely lied about inventing and Hot Cheetos. We're like, damn, oh we should have held that one. It's like two episodes down the line.
2: That seems like a like a my father invented Post-it notes level of like easy, <laughs> easy to see through lies. Right, right.